Well, in all of Scripture, there is perhaps no passage that is both more beautiful and more important than the first chapter of the Gospel of John. This is especially uh, true of the first verses of John's Gospel, which are referred to often as the theological prologue. Now, the Gospel of John, of course, is only one of four biblical accounts we have of the life and ministry of Jesus. But the Gospel of John is unique in many ways. In fact, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are concerned primarily with the events in the life of Jesus, what happened in Jesus' life. They are called the synoptic Gospels, which literally means same seeing. But John's Gospel, on the other hand, which we believe was written much later and almost as a commentary, is less concerned with the events than it is with the theological meaning behind Jesus' ministry. It's less about what happened in Jesus' life than the why of Jesus, what his point was, what his teaching was. That's why it's filled with long sermons of Jesus, for instance. In effect, what John the Apostle is saying to us in John's Gospel is, I want you to know about Jesus and his deeds on earth, but even more important than knowing about the events, I want you to understand that Jesus was more than just a great man or a great teacher, that he was, in fact, the Son of God in the flesh, and I am here to give testimony to that fact. Now let's begin by looking at that theological prologue of John's Gospel, something that we studied just last week in our Bible study, if you were there. It's John 1, and I want to look at the first 14 verses. Hear now this, which is the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. May God add His blessing to this reading of His Word. I say this is one of the most important passages of Scripture because in this short theological prologue of John's Gospel, everything that is foundational to our faith is built in here. And it's presented in a beautifully simple and poetic language. The Apostle Paul, in his writing, because he was, he was a learned man, he spoke many languages, he had a lot of education, his writing can get very complicated. Long sentences, conditional clauses. John was a simple laborer, and his writing is very simple, very straightforward, short sentences, very clear meaning. But because of the simplicity, it is also very beautiful. So what I want us to do right now is to back up to the start of this passage and let's walk through the entire 14 verses and talk about how it is that this represents all of what we truly believe. And by the way, I would strongly recommend to all of you that you memorize at least the first 14 verses of John 1. In fact, you should memorize more than that 
this gives you a solid theological foundation. And I have memorized it, and Carolyn has memorized it, I know. Um, I read it because that's the last thing I need to do is get up here and have a brain malfunction and forget it. So I, uh, But this is something that is so beautiful, you should learn it. Anyway, the first two verses start out. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. John the Apostle starts here where you should start, in the beginning. This is a very intentional echo of Genesis 1. The Genesis account, Genesis 1.1, says in the beginning, the same words, God created the heavens and the earth. In our discussion this morning as we were talking about the, the lectionary readings, we discussed the fact that the two great pillars on which our faith is built are the pillars of God's creation of the universe and of his redemption of the universe. Our old pastor, uh, Earl Palmer, used to say it's like the Brooklyn Bridge. If you've ever been on the Brooklyn Bridge, when it was built, it was an extraordinary construction feat. Nothing like it had ever been built. There are these two main pylons or pillars that literally go down into the river and are sunk and fastened into the bedrock of the earth. Many men died building that because the technology really that we have today wasn't available then. Well, with those two main pillars... It's a cable suspension bridge. Everything else hangs on those two pillars. The same thing is true for our faith. Everything in our Christian faith hangs on two primary theological pillars. And those pillars are the creation, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the redemption, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And as we'll see shortly, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John is, in effect, identifying that the birth of Jesus is the second great event, the second creation account, almost. The first being the creation of the universe, and now, in the person of Jesus, God has chosen to redeem the world that he created by coming as a human being. And John makes the strong point that at the point of creation, or even before that, the Word already had existed. Now... I need to explain, when this says the Word, there was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, the Greek word that is translated word here, it gets a little complicated, is logos. Some of you have heard that word. There's a series of logos bookstores. There's logos Bible software. It's a popular word. But in the first century, the word logos was full of meaning, both for Greeks and for Jews, both Greek philosophy and Jewish philosophy, philosophy use this word logos. It means to speak or to say forth, but it's much more than that. It also means the reasoning behind what is said. It is the wisdom that creates the words. It is quite literally the very reason for the structure and the order of the universe, the embodiment of God's revelation in creation and in Scripture. So it means the thing that is spoken forth, but also everything that's behind it. The wisdom and the reason, the rationale for why it is. This is the word that John is using to refer to Jesus. And we know that because of the passages that come later. Now just as God spoke the words, notice God said, let there be light. He he created by speaking the word. We now see that the word is personified in the person of Jesus, the logos. And the word reference to Jesus comes because he says later, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. He's talking about Jesus. Now, these first two verses also 
dismiss or discount one of the oldest and most persistent heresies that has plagued Christianity for the last 2,000 years. And that is the suggestion that God the Father is the real God and that He created as His first act of creation the Son and the Holy Spirit. That the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, made the second person of the Trinity, the Son, and the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. That heresy, which is called Arianism in its most ancient form because of its main proponent, Arius, he started teaching this in the the Middle East in the end of the third century. And it was that heresy, the idea that Jesus was created, that he wasn't eternal, that the Son of God was not co-eternal with the Father, that's what led directly to the first great church council, the Council of Nicaea, which created our Nicene Creed, which we use once a month. We will recite the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was written in order to establish absolutely that Jesus, the Son of God, is co-eternal with the Father. And then they added some other stuff as well. Our belief is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed as the three persons of the Trinity. And that all are equally God. In John 1, 1 and 2, this is plainly stated, but it's not the only place that it says this. This is not the only point that says that Jesus wasn't a created being, but He was God, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. The first chapter of Colossians, verses 15 to 20, say that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God and that in Him all things were made. In the second chapter of Philippians, we read that Jesus was the very nature of God, but He set His divinity aside to become human and save us, but that He now is exalted again, and in the future every tongue, every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in the first chapter of Hebrews, Jesus is said to be above all things, the exact representation of God to us, and the one who sustains everything. Throughout the New Testament, not just here in John's Gospel, we are told that Jesus is the divine Son of God. He is co-eternal with the Father. He has always been from the very beginning. So anyone who proposes that Jesus was a great teacher and he was a spiritual leader, but that the Bible doesn't really say that Jesus was God, I'm sorry, but apparently they haven't read it. Because it is clear throughout the New Testament that Jesus is is presented as the co-eternal Son of the Father. The Word that was from the beginning, that was God and was with God. Now when it says that Jesus was, was God, that's clear. He is the second person of the Trinity of God. When it says He was with God, this is a statement of relationship between God the Father and God the Son. One of the things that is, again, part of our belief about the Trinity is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one God, are in relationship with one another. God is inherently relational in how He is put together, if you will. And so we are told that the the Son is not only God, but He is with God. He's in relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Verse 3 then says, Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In this verse, John establishes that God is the creator of all things, but even more specifically, he says that that creation came about through the Word, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. That is, more specifically, that the responsibility of God the Son, one of his responsibilities was to be the one through whom creation occurred. I've talked before about uh, what's called the economy of the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal 
They are worthy of the same glory. They have the same power. They are all co-eternal. And yet each of them has certain responsibilities they have accepted. And in this case, we are told that creation, while we're told elsewhere that it occurred because of the will of God the Father, it happened through God the Son. How does that work? Well, it would be like me deciding to build a house. It is my decision, and I provide the resources for it, but I call a contractor to actually do the construction. My will, my design, my resources, but I work through someone else to accomplish what I desire to have done. In this case, God the Father chose to create the universe, but he chose to do it through God the Son, who is called here the Word. So all things that were created were created through the Word. In verse 4 we then read, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I don't think any of us would doubt that our most critical asset as human beings is our life. If you don't have your life, you're not going to have much else. And that life is a gift to us. It was given to us by our Creator. A gift from God the Son, who is the Word through whom creation occurred. Christ, God the Son, gives us our life, and He also gives us light, which means He gives us meaning in our lives. In Scripture, whenever we talk about light, it can mean either God or the life that God gives. While darkness represents death and ignorance, sin and separation from God, Jesus came as the life-giving Word who provided light, the light of God in the darkness that is our human existence. That's why every Christmas we read the passages from the prophet Isaiah, which say that with the coming birth of the Messiah... And I quote here from Isaiah 9-2, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus, the light of the world. He is called that, and he overcomes all darkness. The eternal word, Jesus, is both the life and the light of the world. We're then told in verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Here we have almost a sidebar, almost a side note about John. And this is not John the Apostle who's writing this. This is John the Baptist. Anytime in John's Gospel that you read the name John, it's a reference to John the Baptist, because in ancient times it was considered immodest to name yourself in your own writing. And so John calls himself when he refers to the, the disciples and apostles, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He never uses his own name. John, in this gospel, always means John the Baptist. And the Baptist, of course, was sent ahead of Jesus to prepare the way. He was sent by God to preach repentance from sin and a return to God in advance of Jesus' ministry. Now, John was very important. He's another one of the biblical characters I don't think we give nearly enough credit to. Jesus went so far as to say that no man born of woman was greater than John the Baptist. John had a widespread ministry, and it was very important. We are told that people from all over Israel were going out to the Jordan River to hear him preach and to repent of their sins and be baptized. The very first followers of Jesus had been apostles of John, who, because John encouraged them to, began to follow Jesus. And even 20 years after Jesus' death, we read that Paul encounters a group, a small group of followers of John the Baptist in Ephesus and tells them about Jesus. It is even true, surprisingly, that to this day, today, 
There is in Iraq a group, a religious sect, that claim to be the followers of John the Baptist, even though they do not uh, believe in Christianity. They take the repentance and the water baptism of John the Baptist, but they do not accept Jesus as having been the Messiah, which I'm sure John is disappointed about. In fact, John was so well known and he was so respected during his life that many people were saying that he must be the Messiah that they'd been looking for, that he must be the one that they'd been looking for since the time of Moses. They say he's the Messiah, and John is very clear in saying, no, I'm not. And then they say, well, then you must be Elijah. Elijah never died. He was assumed into heaven, and they expect him to come back. John said, no, I'm not Elijah. Well, you must be one of the other prophets. No, I'm not. John kept denying it. The apostle John here in writing makes it clear that while John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah, he came as a witness to prepare the way for the Messiah, who was the light of the world, the Baptist. John the Baptist was not the Messiah. He, as great as he was, was only the forerunner. And so we must note as well that by mentioning John the Baptist, a historical character, John the Apostle, the writer here, is anchoring his entire account in historical facts. He's mentioning someone who was a historical figure, who was well-known, who was executed under Herod, And he establishes, John the Apostle establishes, therefore, that what he is relating, what he is sharing in terms of the story of his gospel, as well as the theology that he wants to communicate, that these are facts. These things really happened in history. And he makes reference to historical events because of that. We then get to verse 9, and it says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. When Jesus did come into the world, the incarnate Son of God, the world that had been created through him, the majority of the world did not recognize him, did not receive him. He was rejected most especially, even though the earliest Christian converts were Jewish, he was especially rejected by the majority of Jewish people in his day, following their religious leadership. The religious leaders of the Jewish people in the first century felt threatened by Jesus. He challenged their authority and their interpretations of Scripture. They rejected him and persecuted his followers, and most of the Jewish people in his day followed him. But some did convert to Christianity. One of the things that we should be clear about, and I I said in Bible study last week, any Christian who is anti-Semitic, who has a grudge against Jews, has got to be schizophrenic. Because our faith, our religion, is based in Judaism. Jesus is very clear that he came first to the Jewish people. There's an amazing scene where when Jesus is traveling in the area of Phoenicia, a Gentile Phoenician woman comes to him and asks Jesus to heal her daughter. And Jesus' response is kind of shocking. He says, well, I have to be concerned about the needs of the children before I can worry about the dogs. Now, the word he uses for dog basically means puppy. It's a gentle word. It's not nearly as harsh as it sounds when we translate it. And the woman, the women are always the smart ones, by the way, in the Gospels. The woman says, well, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs under the table. And Jesus says, woman, for that answer, your daughter is healed. Because it was an answer of faith And it was also a smart answer. 
And her daughter was healed because of that. But it is very clear that Jesus came first to the Jews, the chosen people of God. And, as the Apostle Paul tells us, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, but that we got grafted on to that vine. That we are adopted into the family of the Jews. Every one of us who is a follower of Jesus is an honorary Jew. And that is how we become the chosen people of God. God still has a plan for the Jews. Now, it must include an acceptance of Jesus. There's no question about that in Scripture. But Scripture says there will be a great return of the Jews to God, which means they will find faith in Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, the Jewish people are still the apple of God's eyes. And by that, I don't necessarily mean the geopolitical entity, which is the state of Israel. The vast majority of the state of Israel is completely secular. You know, they are not religious. They are not followers of God. But the Jewish people are still the apple of God's eye. And we get to be honorary members of that. We then get to verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. There was and is still a plan for Jews and for non-Jews. Ultimately, the critical factor is not whether we are Jewish, either genetically, biologically Jewish, or whether we've accepted the Jewish faith, but whether we accept Jesus, the Son of God who came to redeem us. If we believe in his name, we then become children of God, whether Jew or Gentile. We again, according to Paul, are grafted onto the rootstock of the Jewish people. And as it was commented on in our Bible study when we looked at this, he also tells us that... The branches can be lopped off if necessary, and the rootstock will still remain. So we must be faithful. Verse 14. We come to the end here of what we want to look at today. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here in verse 14, John brings it all to a point. And that is the incarnation of Jesus. That the Son of God, the Word became flesh and lived on earth as a man. This is where we first are made clear that it's first made clear to us that this is Jesus he's talking about. That he became flesh, dwelt among us, and John says we have seen his glory. John is telling us that this word which has always existed, which is God, and who is also with God as part of the Trinity, this word through whom all things were created, who is life and light in the world, who came to his own Jewish people and was rejected, but who will... Uh, will accept as children of God all who believe in him. This word, this Jesus, became flesh, and John and all the other disciples and apostles and followers of Jesus knew him and saw him. Think about somebody you're really close to. Imagine that you spent three years living with this person. Hiking with them, eating with them, sleeping at camp with them, traveling with them all the time. Can you imagine anyone that you would know that well after three years of spending almost every moment together that you would then say, I saw his glory. The glory of the one and only Son of God who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The fact is... They always say familiarity breeds contempt. The more you know about somebody, typically, the less likely you are to praise them in high terms. John and the other apostles knew Jesus intimately, and yet we're told here 
by John, I knew this Jesus. I knew him very well for several years, and let me tell you, he was not just a man. He was the very Son of God, the one of glory, the one who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the witness of John. This is the theological explanation of who Jesus was in the largest, eternal, cosmic sense of it. But it's also that this Jesus, while he was co-eternal with the Father, the eternal Word, he became a man. And John got to know him very well. And having known Jesus, John now testifies to the fact that this Jesus was the eternal Word who created all things, the Son of God who was himself God. That's why I say these first verses of John's Gospel is perhaps the most important in the whole Bible, because the entire Gospel is here. All the good news, and that's what Gospel means, is contained in these 14 verses. The beginning of the story of Jesus' life on earth, but more importantly, a personal witness from the Apostle John as to who and what Jesus was, what he was all about. The Son of God who has always been and who came to earth to save us. That's the gospel message. That's why we should memorize this. Gospel means good news. And this is really, really good news. Amen.